Good morning, everyone, from us here at 3CR and from Left After Breakfast. Susanna here with you, and I'll be joined a little later on by the rest of the Left After Breakfast team. In the meantime, I wanted to ask you a question, a very serious question, and it's about our Prime Minister, Scott. Let me ask you, why do you think he gave an apology to Brittany Higgins earlier this month? Why did he do it? What he's done, really, is his name, an alleged victim of an alleged rape due to go to trial in June. And now, of course, there's considerable doubt as to whether a jury can be struck in the ACT because, as a consequence of this apology, he's interfered with the progress of a criminal trial while ostensibly apologising to the victim who was seeking justice through that legal process. He has imperiled her one chance to seek justice under the guise of publicly declaring his regret for her situation. And he's done it all under parliamentary privilege. Under parliamentary privilege. In the ACT, charges can't be heard in a judge-alone trial, but have to be heard before a jury. The accused lawyers are now seeking a stay on the proceedings on the grounds that Morrison has prejudiced their client's case. If they're successful, the trial will be delayed or possibly aborted. Was this an unfortunate and stupid mistake made by an incompetent politician? Or was it a calculated, self-interested apology in the guise of a message of concern? He must have been aware of the consequences of naming her in his speech. He's frequently in Parliament declined to comment on certain situations because they are before the courts. So we all know he's conscious of the subjudice prohibition. Well, look, no one knows what the trial might reveal. What we do know is that none of it will be good for Morrison. His stated knowledge of the alleged rape remains contested. The accusations of a cover-up by senior advisers and by government ministers remain alive. And now we've had the recent revelations from Barnaby in which he describes in a text Scott as a liar and a hypocrite. And it brings into question again the truthfulness of his account of when he was told of the rape. Sorry, the alleged rape. There are many reasons to argue that the sabotaging of the June trial is advantageous to the Prime Minister, not least because it will bring his questionable role in advance back into public focus, whether they're relevant to the trial or not. Look, it's time to stop explaining that his actions are merely incompetent. The incompetence excuse only conceals the depth of his self-interest and the length to which he will go to protect himself and to further his own concerns. He's a thoroughly ill-intentioned man with enormous power who will do anything he needs to retain that power. Incompetent comes nowhere near describing the dark heart of this man. Indeed, Saying incompetent only works to soften and humanise his psychopathy. He is at heart dangerously ill-intentioned. He may well be incompetent too, but to underestimate his potential for destruction by dismissing it as incompetence is foolish. His efforts to sabotage this reptile should alarm all women and all men who are allies of women, 
All of us, we are nothing to this man. His contempt for us is so boundless, he will even use an apology to derail the possibility of justice, because it's in his interest to do so. It's time he went. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. And it's time for some working class culture. Some poetry from Comrade Natasha. Workplace Carnage. On the 28th of April, all honour our fallen comrades. For Anzac Day, for May Day, for I'm Sorry Day. The bottom line for a worker is death. But the worst sentence is permanent disability pain and disease, or near-death experiences that last the rest of a worker's life. Ask a first aider on site, or the rep who has to take charge of a shed of shocked and angry workers, when a fellow worker, who could just as easily have been in his place at that time of an instant fatal fall, or under a falling load, crushing his body out of all recognition, dies. Pitting himself against the plant and trying to respect his body's relationship to machinery and the force of gravity. What have been the consequences of plant deregulation? What have been the consequences of labour deregulation? What have been the consequences of the privatisation of public utilities and infrastructure? For every person who dies on the road, five people die in the workplace. And when I read the blue and yellow sign that says City Link Toll, I remember Justin O'Connor. So I want to share a day of mourning with my comrades who have survived to remember as one big union in the streets in honour our fallen comrades. April the 28th is the International Day of Mourning Workplace Deaths. 60% of fatalities relate directly to plant. After four years of plant deregulation, what state of maintenance and repair is plant in? Who is responsible Who pays? Workplace deaths confront every one of us till death us do part. Every week 50 people in Australia will die as a result of their work. And that doesn't include the near-death experiences that building workers tell you about. How they survived and how it taught them to respect the plant the materials, the site, other workers, gravity, but most importantly, themselves. To show respect for your own health and safety on the job, as a mark of the respect you show the fallen comrades who have not died in vain. People say that no single workplace death should have been in vain, nor should those workers who have fallen in war when they are expected to give up their life for their country. 
But who has the right to expect any of us to give up our life for a job? Every time another worker stands up in the workplace, putting the letter of the law of the land into place by refusing to work in an unsafe environment, placing that worker or another at risk, challenging every official authority to back up the law with action and calling on every other worker to do the same. Then our eyes are opened by the morning. What lessons have we learnt from the death of Justin O'Connor? What lessons have we learnt from the death of Mark Allen? What lessons have we learnt from the Longford gas explosion? The truth that could be commissioned into a real investigation into those two deaths would uncover more corruption in industry, which has led to authority collaborating by withdrawing the legal right of workers to come home from work in the same condition they left. Every single person in the workplace faces this negation of basic rights in the name of profit, for the benefit of greed. Do you have to give up your life for your job? Every single worker is part of April 28th. We all take part in this sorry day. An injury to one is an injury to all, whether as a black or white, new or old Australian, whether in war or whether in the workplace, we have all fallen comrades to mourn. We demonstrate to the public what the workplace toll means to us and to them, to open their eyes to what is really happening behind those hoardings on the housing development site in the suburbs, on the freeway extensions, the shopfront refurbs, the industrial park sites, the docklands or the house up the road getting a rewiring job. These are all workplaces. How many eyes are really open to the working environment? To focus all the eyes of the public on the workplace to open them and turn them on the Kennett and Howard governments on April 28th, all honour our fallen comrades. Thank you, Comrade Natasha. It's a working man I am And I've been down on Ground. And I swear to God if I ever see the sun Or for any length of time I can hold it in my mind And never again will go down underground at the age of sixteen years, oh, he quarrels with his peers. He vowed they'd never see another one. In the dark recess of the mind, where you wage before your time. 
And the cold dust lies heavy on your lungs It's a working man I am And I've been down underground And I swear to God if I ever see the sun Or for any length of time Again will go down underground At the age of 64 He will greet you at the door And he will gently lead you by the arm Through the dark recess of the mind he will take you back in time And he'll tell you of the hardships that were had It's a working man I am And I've been down on the ground And I swear to God if I ever see the sun Good morning, you're listening to 3CR, the only radio left. And it's time for Ask Bucko. Ask Bucko, he'll tell you. Can Morrison be saved? February was the time for his big reset. National Press Club address, assorted ministers as support, Murdoch journalists at the ready. He was welcomed by Laura Tingle. That was probably the last moment of peace for him. She opened proceedings by asking him if he would like to take the opportunity to apologise for his and his government's performance. She included the bushfires and the trip to Hawaii. That's a tough start. Then after a typical speech where he invoked the curious amnesiac defence, he rewrote recent Australian history. The bushfires, the pandemic, the vaccine stroll out, the opening up of the borders... The lack of rats were all roaring successes. If anything ruined his perfect memories, it was his delay in using the military to deliver the vaccines. But Australians were resilient. Even his being surprised by the Omicron strain was just the nature of the virus. Anyone could have been caught wrong-footed, except he had had the advantage of watching its devastating advance through the Northern Hemisphere. He opened up, in a massive gamble which has caused more deaths than the previous two years and rising. His greatest strength of having handled the pandemic has turned into a failure. He can't shift blame on the aged care crisis because the electorate has finally understood it is a federal responsibility. Peter Van Onselen then got up and blew his efforts at rehabilitation out of the water. Peter is a conservative journalist and he can be 
usually relied on to normalise most of the government's shoddy performance, but this time he had different intentions. He demolished Morrison personally by quoting a couple of texts to him on national TV. A reset, perhaps, but in the wrong direction. Gladys Berejiklian had called him a horrible, horrible person. An unnamed Liberal Cabinet Minister had labelled him a psycho. The journalist did not identify the source. This was the stuff usually discussed in a closed room of huddled advisers. It was riveting TV, with Morrison unable to attack back or to deny the substance. He couldn't even reject the premise of the question. The journalist had become the story, with Morrison collateral damage. By the end of the week, most of the Cabinet had handed in their denials of being the leaker. Canberra was lit up by the drama. The culprit has not been hunted down yet, but he was about to be upstaged by the one and only Barnaby Joyce. By the end of the week, Barnaby Joyce was warned that one of his own texts, sent via a third party to Brittany Higgins, was about to be leaked. As he invariably does, Barnaby took the bull by the horns, confessed to his own disloyal text and enjoyed a small victory by beating the Barnaby leaker. He had called Morrison a liar and a hypocrite, amongst other things, to a third party of all people, from an MP and an ex-Deputy Prime Minister. How secure was that text chain? The National Press Club was booked the next week to host an appearance by two of the most popular young women in Australia, Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins. The problem for Morrison is that not only are these women joined by a common goal of making women safe, but they also openly jeer at his lack of action to protect women, both in the parliament and in society at large. Of course, he has been clueless in many of his interactions with them, but they're a generation prepared to throw away the etiquette book and to demand change. Attacking them is risky because they have captured the public imagination. Their addresses were different, but shared a theme that the Morrison government had talked the talk but had not followed through with actions. In the meantime, Peter Dutton and Josh Frydenberg have begun counting numbers and attacking Anthony Albanese because they feel the panic. Opinion polls have been disastrous. It is as if a dam has burst. Can Morrison retain the government's leadership as we head into another election? In a seeming competition to attack Anthony Albanese as being a sign of how good you'll be, Peter Dutton has engaged in scurrilous attacks against Albanese, accusing him of being a communist China sympathiser and casting Labor as weak on national security. This comes from a Defence Minister who appears way too nervous and frisky to handle any real dispute with China and who scares all of us with his intemperate language. Frydenberg continues to hysterically lambaste Albanese with the curious attack line that he's never had a Treasury portfolio. As many have pointed out, neither had Robert Menzies, John Gorton, Malcolm Fraser, Tony Abbott or Malcolm Turnbull. It's presumed that Mr Albanese can count, which is a skill Frydenberg continues to search for. The question is, who do we think we can bear for the next three months of escalating personal attacks on the opposition leader? Skymo, Dutz or Joshi?
May the Lord save us all. Thank you for listening. And remember, you can find Bucko at askbucko.com. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. 3CR It's enough sometimes to really make you despair, isn't it? Well, sometimes I feel like despairing. If someone had said to me a few years ago, say 20 years ago, this is what your country is going to be like, I would have laughed. And you know the sun's setting fast and just like they say, nothing good ever lasts well, Go on now and kiss it goodbye But hold on to your lover Cause your heart's bound to die Go on now and say goodbye To our town, to our town Can't you see the sun setting down On our town, on our town up the street beside the red neon line That's where I met my baby on one hot summer night He was the tender and who ordered a beer It's been 40 years and I'm still sitting here But you know the sun's setting fast just for they say, nothing could ever last Go on now and kiss it goodbye But hold on to your love Cause your heart's bound to die Go on now and say goodbye To our town, to our town Can't you see the sun setting down On our town, on our town Walked down Main Street in the cold morning mist Over there is where I bought my first car It turned over once but then it never went far And I can see the sun setting fast And just like they say nothing good ever lasts Go on now and kiss it goodbye But hold on to your lover But your heart's bound to die That pretty brick wall I bring them flowers About every day But I just gotta cry When I think what they'd say If they could see How the sun's setting fast And 
just like they say, nothing good ever lasts. Well, go on now and kiss a goodbye, but hold on to your love, cause your heart's bound to die. Go on now and say goodbye to our town, to our town. Fly, but I can't see too good I've got tears in my eyes I'm leaving tomorrow But I don't want to go I love you, my town You'll always live in my soul But I can see the sun setting fast And just like they say Nothing good ever lasts Go on, I gotta kiss you goodbye But I hold to my lover Heart's bound to die. Go on now and say goodbye to my town, to my town. I can see the sun has gone down on my town, on my town. There's plenty of specialist music programs to choose from on the 3CR grid. Explore the 3CR schedule online at 3cr.org.au. Yes, this is our vibration. Check out Music Sons Frontier. Great voices. Music matters. The hip sister hop show. The heavy session. The Planet X radio show. Satellite skies. Shindig. Sweet dreams. Tune in to 3CR 855 AM on your digital radio or streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Let our music make you happy. some news about the bagman, dear listener. At the moment, he's recovering from um, removal of a cobblestone producer. Yes, a cobblestone producer, otherwise known as gallbladder. Golly, I remember when it was suggested to me that I should have my gallbladder removed. I changed my diet. I preferred doing that than going through general anaesthesia. But... The bagman had to undergo the surgery and he's still recovering, still recovering. So we won't be hearing from him this week, which is a shame. And I apologise to everyone who, to you who tune in, especially just to hear him, to hear his dulcet tones and his opinions on, well, on everything. So you have to wait until next week to hear from the bagman. 
You're stuck with me for a little longer then, dear listener, and I'm going to talk again about something that's really, really important to me and important to you and important to nearly every Australian, apart from the 5% who really couldn't care less about the other 95%, is I want to talk about the cashless card, the welfare card, the Indu card, all the names we have for it. Uh, Good morning, you're listening to 3CR, the only radio left. Yes, you are indeed listening to 3CR. You're listening to Left After Breakfast. Good on you. But I wanted to hit you first off, listener, with the concern, the very deep concern, that we have an election coming soon. And you have to get your friends, your neighbours, everyone you know, strangers on the bus stop, for heaven's sake. We must not vote these buggers back in. This worst government that we've had forever. Let's just get rid of those people in Canberra as quickly as we can. Vote them out. Otherwise, well, what other choice do we have? I don't want to say it on air, listener, but you know what other choice we have. There are so many reasons to vote these buggers out. There are so many things I could say. But one thing we have to remember when we're talking about this particular government is the cashless debit card. And that's of great concern to me. And it should be of great concern to you. The cashless debit card, as you know, what it is, it forces income support recipients to have 80% of their benefit quarantined to a debit card that can't be used for gambling or to purchase alcohol or to withdraw cash. The remaining 20% of a person's pension is placed into the normal bank account. So it's advertised as being an income scheme to stop people using their pensions on alcohol, gambling, etc. But don't worry, because everything else will be business as usual. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. It restricts so much more than that. It means you can't shop at supermarkets because some supermarkets have a liquor section. You can't pay for school excursions on it. You can't pay for school uniforms on it. They have to be from some approved store. Well, have a little think about what might be an approved store, something with which this government agrees. The point is it strips away from people their right to manage their own finances, making them, well, at least second-class citizens, making them endure abuse and stigmatisations, makes them being branded as a drug user, alcohol user, and being basically financially worse off due to the extra fees and charges for using the card. And though the government has claimed the card will reduce the effects of welfare-fueled alcohol and gambling abuse and it will assist people to break the cycle of welfare dependency by stabilising their lives and helping them into employment. And they claim that the card reduces domestic violence and crime and improves the welfare of children and families. However, the St Vincent de Paul Society has spent many years researching the effects of the cashless debit card and they show that this does not result in widespread or sustained benefits either to the individual or to their community. 
It leads to no discernible improvements in employment outcomes, is poorly targeted, is not cost-effective, can result in strong negative experience, that is, social stigmatisation and exclusion, financial hardship, increased stress, financial harassment, discrimination, and damages financial management skills. But the question we ask, why is the government so keen on this card? Let's just have a look where the idea of the card originated. Well, you'll probably be quite surprised to find that the mining billionaire Andrew Forrest put forward the concept of this card to the federal government himself. I'm not sure when we started taking advice from mining billionaires and retail billionaires, for heaven's sake. I suppose we should always remember that Jerry Harvey, as a billionaire retailer, once again, a very wealthy individual, he's the one who lamented that Australian charity is being wasted on no-hopers. Well, let's just leave Jerry Harvey, the one of the most dislikable people in this country, and we'll look instead at Andrew Forrest. Now, what does Andrew Forrest hope to gain by giving advice to the government on how it can look after its less advantaged citizens? I mean, seriously, what could a mining magnate hope to achieve? Does he care about people who are less advantaged than he is? We shall see. I mean, nothing wrong with people giving their opinions and then they're entitled to their opinions, even if their opinions are too gross to make you keep your breakfast down. But they shouldn't be proffering their opinions directly for government, especially how to apportion taxpayer funds in the interest of the public. Because, (laughs) seriously, listener, mining magnates really consider the public interest. You know, that's why we have elected representatives. That's why we have a public service. The elected representatives and the public service implement critical community services and they take responsibility for the decisions that they make. So, all in all, it was rather, well, perplexing, really, why Andrew Forrest came up with this idea of his. He gave this report to the newly elected Abbott government. He brings ideas and opinions to the table, but these are ineffective, harsh, and demeaning to the people they're meant to support. And let's be real here. Ideas provided to create more opportunities for the wealthy class. And his report, called Creating Parity, was essentially a long opinion piece showcasing the thoughts of Andrew Forrest, typical of the robber baron corporate cowboy mentality that strongly suggests his way is the only way to address welfare issues. But what I find really curious in this Creating Parity report, listener, in this report, Forrest consistently refers to the National Australia Bank, to the Commonwealth Bank of Australia, to Westpac and to ANZ. But there is no mention of Indu, the banking company that Forrest 
and a couple of his friends were involved with at the time and the company that has ended up managing the program. Well, of course, you'll say governments should be open to new ideas to address identified social problems, but Forrest sought money-making opportunities that will benefit friends of the Liberal and National parties and siphon public monies into private hands. The Indu company has existed in some form for about 50 years, but more recently developed a range of tentacles that reach out to a range of political players, primarily within the conservative domain. The most prominent of these is the former National Party MP, Larry Antony. During the time of the Howard government, Antony was the Minister for Children and Youth Affairs, and after losing his seat at the 2004 federal election, he became a director of ABC Learning, the corporatised childcare provider that attracted a wide range of Liberal Party operatives and MPs, you know, like Peter Dutton for a start. Through 50% childcare subsidy provided by the federal government, ABC Learning reached a market capitalisation of $2.5 billion. If there's largesse to be found and delivered from the government to the private sector, Larry Antony is never too far away. Antony's trust company, Ilalangi, owns substantial shares in Indu. Now, Indu has received between 4000 to 10000 for each participant in the cashless debit card, up to $10,000 for a private company to manage an account only worth up to 14000 annually, would make me ask, um, is this company the most cost-effective option? And also why it was chosen in the first bloody place, especially when the expertise and experience provided by the National Australia Bank, the Commonwealth Bank, the West Bank, or indeed ANZ, would obviously have been far superior. But, come on, it's all about the transfer of public money to private hands. This is the cashless debit card, listener, and it's coming for you. Oh, I'll have to stop and take a breath. It's been more than 10 minutes I've been ratting and ranting away about this transfer of our money into the hands of a very greedy and obscenely wealthy few. So I thought I'd play something from my past. Oh, golly, you can pick my vintage, can't you, by the music that I play. Here's a really, really old one from on top of my wardrobe again. From the Weavers. I've traveled around this country from shore to China shore. It really made me wonder the things I heard and saw. I saw the weary farmer plowing his sod and loam. I heard the auction hammer just a-knocking down his home. But the banks are made of marble with a god. 
I saw the seamen standing idly by the shore, and I heard the owners saying, "Got no work for you no more." But the banks are made of marble. Oh, yes, the Weavers. Pete Seeger started off with them, of course. Oh, God, that takes me right back to the 1950s when I was listening to the Weavers and trying to play the guitar with all those little dung-dung-dung-dung. Well, I learned that fast enough, but nothing else, really. Oh, well, that's all in the past. It's another country, as they say. But, yes, the Becks are made of marble, and Indo is made of marble with a guard at every door and our federal government putting the army around it. That's where the money's going from the cash-to-stepit card and it's coming for you. This federal government is all ready to go with rolling out, oh, I love that term, rolling out the cash-to-stepit card to everyone who is on a benefit or pension. Everyone, just remember that, listener, when it comes time to vote, and it won't be long before it becomes time to vote. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. And I am indeed very, very serious about an election coming up soon, listener. Be ready for it. Have your friends ready for it. Have your family ready for it. Have everybody you know ready for it. This has to stop now. This murderous mob has to go. And talking of going, I'll have to be on my way soon. But I want to leave you with one of my favourite songs that I haven't played for a long time. But once again, from the top of my wardrobe. And this is Roy Bailey with Leon Russelton and their <laughs> stirring song, Stand Up for Judas. Masters 
When Jesus walked the land in Judea and in Galilee, they ruled with an iron hand. And the poor were sick with hunger, and the rich were clothed in splendor, and the rebels whipped and crucified, hung rotting as a warning. And Jesus knew the answer. Said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Said, love your enemies. But Judas was a zealot and he wanted to be free. Resist, he said, the Romans' tyranny. So stand up, stand up for Judas and the cause that Judas served. It was Jesus who betrayed the poor with his word. Jesus was a conjurer. Miracles were his game, and he fed the hungry thousands, and they glorified his name. He cured the lame and the lepers. He calmed the wind and the weather. And the wretched flocked to touch him, so their troubles would be taken. And Jesus knew the answer. All you who labour, all you who suffer, only believe in me. But Judas sought a world where no one starved or begged for bread. The poor are always with us, Jesus said. So stand up, stand up for Judas and the cause that Judas served. It was Jesus who betrayed the poor with his word. Now Jesus brought division where none had been before. Not the slaves against their masters, but the poor against the poor. Said sons to rise up against father, and brother to fight against brother. For he that is not with me is against me. Was his teaching? Said Jesus. I am the answer. You unbelievers shall burn forever, shall die in your sins. Not sheep and goats, said Judas, but together we may dare shake off the chains of misery we share. So stand up, stand up for Judas and the cause that Judas served. It was Jesus who betrayed the poor with his word. Jesus stood upon the mountain with a distance in his eyes. I am the way, the life. He cried, the light that never dies. 
So renounce all earthly treasures and pray to your heavenly Father. And he pacified the hopeless with the hope of life eternal. Said Jesus, I am the answer. And you who hunger, only remember your rewards in heaven. So Jesus preached the other world, but Judas wanted this, and he betrayed his master with a kiss. So stand up, stand up for Judas, and the cause that Judas served, it was Jesus who betrayed the poor with his word. Yes, indeed. Stand up for Judas. That's a good one from Roy Bailey. And I'm at the end of the program with a bit of time over because we don't have that oh, so elusive bad man. So I'm going to have to play you some more music, some more from the top of my wardrobe while we're on the subject of Jesus. Sitting on dashboard. 
For the ride. I enjoyed having you with me on the program. We'll be back next week, same time, same place. And of course, if all goes well, it will be with the Bagman, as well, of course, as the rest of the team. But for the moment, it's um, Susanna saying, Cheerio, mate. Catch us soon. <laughs>